Clothing is a powerful tool that many use to communicate truth. It it can be a kind of billboard for the world. Many times what we wear communicates our emotional state. For example, some rebelling against social norms wear clothing that doesn't fit a typical social context. Uh, We find this particularly popular among adolescents. Uh, Adolescents will wear certain types of clothing in order to rebel against social norms. Uh, They will wear more provocative clothing or darker colors and darker shades to communicate their darker feelings. Clothing is used also to change people's perception of us. Uh, We use clothing to communicate that we're powerful. And so you'll find people wearing certain clothing in the uh, business world. Uh, Power suits, suits that are of certain color and type uh, in order to communicate power and prestige. We see in advertising all around us that clothing transforms who we are. Uh, So you'll see popular advertisers will say, if you buy this shirt or wear these pants or, or even change your makeup and your hairstyle, you can be a new you. Clothing companies position themselves in order to help people change themselves. In a changing world, clothing is always changing. Styles come and go, right? Uh, it's kind of funny, I'm sure, for many of you to see uh, styles come back again. You, you, you see, you know, bell bottoms and then they fall out. And boy, then they came back and thankfully they're out of style, right? Uh, right? They come and they go. But clothing communicates. We know that well in church, right? You get onto the pastor for wearing jeans, and right? And then you see people wearing jeans that don't normally wear jeans. You're like, well communicating right (laughs) this sister's communicating right right we communicate with what we wear while we might wear a certain style to fit our social context clothing really is a facade it's easy to get dressed up and look good externally and know internally we are really really messed up It doesn't really matter how much new clothing or different clothing that we wear. On the inside, we know that that we are unchanged. It's a false reality that we're projecting on others. And while it might communicate a message, it doesn't change who we really are. In the gospel, we learn that we also change clothes. That we get a new wardrobe. We thought about this last week in a sort of principle of how how God is changing our clothes. Not the clothes that we have on this morning, of course. It's all dress alike. But rather that we get a new wardrobe of living. We change our clothes. We take off the old shabby clothes of our former life. And we put on the new robes of righteousness. The robes that are created after the likeness of God. What we wear as Christians then matters. Not what we have on, of course, but what we wear on our hearts and how our lives are changed. And and while 
In this world, we can change our clothes and put on a facade. In the new world, we do know and trust that, well, we can't fake it for very long. So what are these new clothes? Over the next three weeks, we're going to consider the new robes that God has given us to wear. We're going to think about how God has given us these new characteristics. These these characteristics are not for the, the mature believer, though the mature believer should be embracing them. Uh, These characteristics aren't merely for the new believer or the the middle-of-the-road believer, but rather these characteristics are for all Christians. Over the last few weeks, we've been learning how to live in light of our high calling in Christ. In chapter 4, in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that you've been Paul began this theme that unites the last three chapters of of our walk, walking worthy of the gospel, walking worthy of our new relationship in Christ. And we'll see here in in chapter five in in two weeks that that how Paul sort of describes this walk of the believers is sort of summarized in the statement there in chapter five and verse two and walk in love. In other words, we could summarize everything we're going to think about today, next week, and the week after, and summarize it by saying, walk in love. A worthy walk is a walk in love. And so Paul gives us some specific examples of how Christians live distinct lives from the world. How we take off our old clothes and put on this new clothing, a walk in love. Walk in love, he says. So how are we to do this? How are we to practice? Well, Paul begins to give us some specific examples. And so I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. Next week, we'll consider verses 29 through 32, and then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This week, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are all members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Well, we see there outlined three specific examples for believers Uh, Three practical ways. As Christians, we learn to put off our old ways by putting on these new ways in Christ. New ways that are characteristic or characterized by walking in love. Each of these, we could say, is an example, a practical example of love, right? To lie is to not love. To be angry persistently is to not love. Uh, To steal from others is clearly not love. And so all of these could be summarized by saying that we are walking in love by telling the truth, by being angry without sinning, and by working hard so that we can be generous. So the purpose of our time is really just give us some practical examples of how to walk in love. And those are the three points we're going to consider this morning. First, we walk in love by telling the truth to others. 
Second, we walk in love by resolving anger quickly. Thirdly, we walk in love by working hard. Truth, anger, and hard work. Well, let's think about how we can put these on. Now, before we do, I want to I show you just sort of the, what Paul's doing in his argument. Because I think his argument gives kind of the thrust to the whole passage. So I want, to, I want you to notice a few things. First, I want you to notice that all of these are relational. All of these exhortations, all of these commands are relational. Christians have been united to Christ and to one another. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community with other Christians. Now, I've said this often, and I, I think it bears repeating. Because we live in a culture that values independence and values individualism, what happens when you come to a church is you are fighting in your heart, in your flesh, individualism. You want to do life the way you want to do life. You want to live life by yourself. You, you think you can follow Jesus alone, but you will never find an example in all of Scripture of a lone ranger Christian. Christians live in community. And so you'll see that all of this is relational. All of this is meant to be followed in the context of local churches like ours. And so where do we see lying going on is in the church, right? Where do we see persistent anger going on in the church? Where do we see stealing going on in the church, right? And this is the context where we deal with these. The second thing I want you to see here is that negative negative examples are often followed by positive. In other words, just notice how he sets this up. He says, put, put away falsehood, put on truth. Don't be angry, but do this, right? Stop that, start this. What's he doing? He's showing you what repentance looks like. So repentance isn't just you feeling bad that you messed up. Like, man, that's worldly sorrow, right? Paul distinguishes between worldly sorrow, grief, and godly grief, right? Godly repentance, true repentance, is, is change. You stop going that way and you go another way. That's what repentance means. And so what Paul here is modeling for us is the life of repentance. We, we stop lying but, and we start telling the truth, right? We, we, stop, we, we stop getting angry all the time and persisting in anger I mean, we stop getting angry, but rather we stop persisting in it. Oh, he goes on and continues that. And I just want you to see that. And then thirdly, I want you to notice here as I go throughout this, that Paul undergirds every point with theology. Every single point is undergirded by a theological statement. The reason I want you to see this is because it is dangerous when we get into application passages like this. It's dangerous for us to drift away from the gospel. It's dangerous for us to drift into kind of a works righteousness. If I obey this, God loves me better or more. And that's a dangerous thing. That, that's what leads to legalism. When, when we begin to think, man, I had a good week this week. I read my Bible every day. I, uh, I even prayed. I, I loved my wife. 
I didn't beat my kids. I mean, not hard, um, you know, right. And, and I can get in this kind of self-righteous, God is impressed with me kind of position. And the truth of the gospel is God isn't impressed with you because of you. He's impressed with you because you are in Christ. He's impressed with his son. And you're united to him. And so therefore he's, in, he's impressed with you because of that. And we see also here that theology leads to worship, to doxology, right? And, and obedience. And so when we have Right theology leads to right living. I just, I'm sort of just convinced of that. And I know there's people that have good theology and, and bad living, but, but Paul seems to be arguing that, that if you have the right theology, then you're going to live right. And so he undergirds these by giving us what I would call theological motivations, motives for obeying God. And you'll see there's three of them, and I'll highlight them as we go throughout. Well, let's get into the outline. First, Paul says that we are to walk in love by telling the truth to others. Notice what he writes there in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul begins his first practical example by telling his readers to stop lying. Paul doesn't mean here generally just falsehoods, like perpetuating falsehoods, uh, false theology or, or error but rather the actual practice of lying, right? Notice the language he uses here. He says, having put away. Well, this is the same word that Paul uses back in verse 22, to put away your old self or put off. So, so Paul says, is saying, having put it away. In other words, that the life of the believer is putting sin behind us. He's put it away. He's taking it off. He's saying, take off your lying ways. Lying is what? They did. Now, in each of these cases, I'll, I'll make mention now, and, and I may mention it later, that he's using this and, he, and he's principalizing. He's, he's, saying, he's saying, this is who you are. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. You are deceptive. And, of course, we know that lying throughout the Old and New Testament is forbidden, right? Uh, we learned that on the first day of kindergarten, right? That we're not to lie. Uh, we're to tell the truth, right? Um, we are to speak truth, not deceive others. Elsewhere in Colossians 3, Paul writes to them. He says, listen, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. So Paul here is warning us not to persist in lying. And friend, if you are like me, it is easy to lie. It is so easy to distort the truth. And we all know that, you know, white lie, you know, they're not that bad. But we know how lies can, can, can just grow, don't they? Something that starts so small is, you know, and, and passive, like, why were you late coming home? Or, or, or why, what happened here, right? Um, you know, kids are often humorous, right? When, when, when they get caught doing something, they, they, they spin a, a web of lies. I mean, I don't know what happened. Oh, we know that lies are as old as time, right? When God confronted Adam and Eve in their sin, they lied. Adam responds, the woman made me do it. Eve responds, the serpent made me do it. The serpent's like, I wanted to do it. Thank you. We lie. 
we distort the reality. And friend, I wonder this morning, do you struggle in this area? Do you find it easy to lie? Are you even perhaps today entangled in a web of lies? Perhaps you've been lying to your spouse. Perhaps you've been lying to your co-workers about your performance. Or perhaps you've been lying to your neighbors. And perhaps you've been lying to us. You've been deceiving others. Friend, the way to get away from lying, the way to stop lying is by telling the truth. The remedy to, to dealing with lying is by consuming truth and speaking truth. And so this morning, let me just exhort you to walk into the light by confessing the truth. By saying, I've been lying. You see, that's telling the truth, you see. That, that's confessing the truth. Confession is truth telling. And you're in the safest place to tell the truth. Because as Christians, we know that the gospel is how we are saved, not our righteousness. That we receive a righteousness that is not ours. The holy righteousness of Jesus is given to us. And so this morning, there's a reason why I use Romans 8.1 as our assurance of pardon. So that you could hear this morning that if you are in a season of lies, if you are caught in lies right now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you come on into the light and you tell the truth. You know, it's interesting that, that lies always get found out. We think we're good at deceiving others, but in reality, we know. We've all done it, right? We've all been found out in our lie at some point, whether it's a little white lie that we told. We always get found out. The truth always comes out. And if it doesn't come out, the Bible tells us and warns us that there is a day when all will be laid bare. And God will, will, will sit you down. And the truth will be told. And all those thoughts that you had, all those lies will be exposed. And if you're in Christ, you know that those will be forgiven. But if you're not in Christ this morning, you will be judged eternally. Lying may seem so small and insignificant. And of course, lying is not of the same moral weight as murder. But lying does make it on the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Meaning that it's morally significant to God. In fact, the Bible says that one act, one sin against an infinitely holy God, one little white lie condemns us eternally. And so let me exhort you this morning to stop lying by speaking the truth. Look what he writes here in verse 25. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor." Now, Paul here, he, uh, he hits the whole congregation with that, let each one of you. In other words, essentially what he says is, hey, I know y'all been lying, so let's not pretend. Let, let's not, you know, I'm not going to play Mr. Nice. And he basically says, congregation, stop your lying and start your truth telling. 
right? And so he's saying, hey, every one of you have been struggling in this area. I know that you all have been uh, lying. And so I want all of you to speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, I don't want to get into all the details here, but, but that word neighbor, right? We might, might begin to think, oh, like my next door neighbor? No, this is just Bible language for anyone else, okay? Uh, Jesus kind of clarifies who's your neighbor, who's your neighbor is everybody, all right? So if you're wondering, hmm, so she's my neighbor, he's not my neighbor, no. Everyone's your neighbor, tell the truth to everybody, all right? The, the point that Paul here is making, though, is again relational, right? He's talking about the context of a local church. They have been lying to one another, they had been deceiving one another. And Paul says, this is how you speak the truth in love. Remember what he wrote back there in verse 15. Rather, speak the truth in love. And as we do that, he says, we are to grow up in every way into the head, into Christ. In other words, this church was being held back from growing spiritually because they couldn't speak the truth in love. And we know Jesus came to this church and he had a few things. And one of the things that was wrong with this church was its lack of love. Love is what characterizes us as a Christian. And particularly telling the truth. One author wrote this, when you are telling the truth, you are imitating God. When you are lying, you are imitating Satan. Paul here is quoting from Zechariah 8.16. When he tells them to speak the truth. And, and I only mention that because it, Zechariah chapter 8 has this sort of eschatological focus. It's a picture that Zechariah prophesies about the new heavens and the new earth. In the, in the latter half of Zechariah, he's, he's prophesying about the, the kingdom that is going to come. And the, the, the reign of the anointed one. And he says, speak the truth to one another. Rend in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Uh, He was was casting a vision to the people of a place where judgments, where where judges would would decree justly, where there would be no bribes and and no one could be deceived. And John paints a similar picture in Revelation chapter 22 when he writes, outside of the gates are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, the murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who lies. And so what Paul here is saying is live in light of this new kingdom you've been been brought into. He offers us some motivation, doesn't he? Why should you repent and believe? Why should you turn from from lying and tell the truth? Look Look at how he motivates us here. Verse 25, for we are members one of another. In other words, Paul says, we're to, we're to tell the truth because we're a family. Because we are members one of another. We're, we're in a body. He picks up this theme that he taught us earlier in the beginning of chapter 4. That we have been united to one another in a body, in a local congregation. And brothers and sisters, nothing erodes unity in the local church more than lying, more than deception, more than deceiving one another and, and speaking falsehood against one another and just I mean, speaking lies maybe about someone else or, or about yourself or, or about them. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans 12, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
Brothers, this is why we, brothers, this is why we value church membership and why we want to see community built around members in this local church. Because that is the context where we work this out, where we exhort one another to repent from lying and exhort one another to tell the truth. How do you lie? How are you lying now? You know, so often we focus on overt lies, sort of in-your-face lies. I'm a millionaire. Or, you know, I've got a Ph.D., in certain contexts, I hear pastors doing this. Making ourselves better, making ourselves out to be better than we are. That's really kind of maybe one of the big motivations for lying. We, we want to deceive others. We want others to think better of ourselves because we, we think so little of ourselves. Perhaps it's by deceiving one another about our spiritual health. I, I fear this one more than any other. When I or Rod ask you, how are you doing spiritually? And your response is fine. Okay. Are you being honest? Are you being honest with one another? Or do you put on this facade, the lies that everything's good spiritually? Do you lie to your spouses about your spiritual health? When you're asked, are you reading your Bible and praying, spending time with the Lord, do you lie? Why do you bruise your conscience by lying about something like that? Why is it so easy for us to do that? Rather than being honest, this is a safe place, right? This is a place where we are all in need of Jesus. Be honest. No, I... I have not been reading, reading my Bible. Or, ah, oh, I'm struggling spiritually. I'm discouraged. Or, I'm depressed. I, I just, ah. Oh. Or, you know what? I've seen the ugly reflection of my pride this week. And I've just seen the Lord has been kind to reveal my pride this week. Fundamentally, lies strike at the glory of God. By making ourselves to be more glorious. Lying fundamentally robs God of his rightful glory. And it is at the heart of human depravity. Lying seeks to shift the blame off of self and onto others. But the right remedy forward is by speaking the truth. By telling the truth. By being people of the truth. That's who we are. We are children of truth. So as new creations in Christ, let us walk in love by telling the truth. We'll look secondly here. Another practical example that Paul gives in verse 26 and 27 is that we are to walk in love by resolving anger quickly. Paul here describes a righteous anger versus an unrighteous anger. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, Paul is not giving a command here, as our English kind of phrases it. Like, he's not giving license for anger. Okay, so like, go around and be angry all the time, right? No, that, this, he's saying, when you are angry, don't sin. 
when you're angry, don't persist in it. Don't let Satan take hold of your heart. Here Paul is quoting Psalm 4.4 verbatim. Psalm 4.4, David writes, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. The psalmist in Psalm 4 is crying out because of injustice that has been inflicted upon him. He's experienced injustice. People have been lying about him. I think it's fascinating that Paul takes Psalm 4-4, having said all he said in verse 25, and then quotes verbatim. Maybe it was just in his mind he was like thinking about Psalm 4 when he begins to write this. In other words, what the psalmist is saying and, and what Paul is saying is there's no reason for you to be angry with others. You see, the distinguish. The, the, the difference, rather, between righteous anger and unrighteous anger is what you're angry about. And I think particularly who you're angry at or what you're angry at. Elsewhere in Psalm 37, the psalmist says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Of course, we have examples all throughout the Bible. We heard them well articulated in this prayer of praise that God is said to be angry. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verse 9, uh, the king was acting like a fool, and the, the passage says that God was angry with the king. He was angry with the king. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 12, God relented of his anger. And so the Bible presents a picture of God being angry. Of course, Jesus, we, we know that well picture, of Jesus throwing over the tables in the temple. He was he had hot indignation. He was angry. But he was angry for the right reason. You see, what differentiates the two is that God is never angry with people. He's always angry with sin. In other words, what God's anger is aimed at is their sin. You remember Jesus on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, his anger, Christ's anger, was, was aimed at their sin, not at who they were. Jesus taught against unrighteous anger, anger that is aimed at people, not at sin. In Matthew 5.22, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, if you're angry with people, you will be judged. Peter O'Brien, commenting on this passage, writes, If our anger is not free from injured pride, malice, or a spirit of revenge, it has degener degenerated rather into sin. Or what we heard earlier in James chapter 4. Uh, know this, my brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Or as Paul taught in Romans chapter 12, uh, bend uh, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but live it, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. What do you get angry about? What is it that makes you angry? Are you angry because of something someone's done to you? Because of some infliction upon you? I'm sure there's many reasons for us to be angry. Many righteous reasons to be angry. I mean, clearly if we suffer injustice, it is not wrong to be angry. 
Paul describes here in this verse what he's really aiming at. Look with me again at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, what Paul is after here is persistent anger. Anger that is not quickly resolved. So he's saying, look, it's okay to be upset. Anger is an emotion God gave you. It is not a result of the fall. He gave, that's an emotion he gave you. Okay? But when we allow anger to fester in our soul and we hold on to it, then we drift into sin. Paul here is telling us to get over our anger. And so, friend, I wonder this morning, do you hold on to anger? When someone hurts you, do you you just hold a grudge against them? Do you allow that just to kind of stew in your soul and you just can't get over it? You just it just grows and grows and grows and grows. Calvin writes it this way. There are three faults by which we offend God in being angry. The first is when our anger arises from slight causes and often from no cause whatsoever or at least from private injuries or offenses. In other words, Calvin essentially saying, stop, being like a, stop acting like a baby. Get over it. Okay? Secondly, he writes, when we go beyond the proper bonds and are hurried into intemperate excesses. In other words, you act, you act like a fool. Sometimes when we get angry, you know, we just like lose our minds. As Calvin says, when we do that, we're in sin. The third, when our anger, which ought to have been directed against ourselves or against sin, is turned against our brethren. This is why Paul had to write to the church in Rome. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So often when we are angry, we, we go after people. And we tear them to pieces. This is why Paul, in next week we'll consider what Paul says, how we should build one another up and not tear each other down. In our anger, so often what we do, when we allow that anger to, to fester and, and to fuel and, and to grow, and we are a one-person army ready to annihilate anyone in our path. And so Paul here is exhorting us to get over our anger. Now I want you to see the motivation here. I told you there's a motivation. I think the motivation begins when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And the conjunction there and the verse where it splits almost seems like it's two separate ideas. And I think it's one. In other words, what Paul is saying is, when you persist in anger, you sleep with the devil. You know, so often I, I hear people use this verse and uh, they'll take it literally. All right, so... Let me help you here. Metaphors are not to be taken literally, okay? It's a metaphor. It's a window into a behavior, okay? So I know some of y'all are like, all right, we got to deal with this tonight. I can't go to bed until we deal with this. Now, practical advice here. That doesn't work. Some people need a little bit more time, all right? So if you make your wife mad at 9 o'clock at night, don't expect that you're going to be going to bed with everything's good, right? Um, that's not Paul's point. The point here that he's making in this metaphor is that you get over it because if you don't get over it, you're spending the night with the enemy. 
You're opening the door for the enemy. Brothers and sisters, when we drift into sinful anger, we, when we don't get over it, what we do is we open the home to all the other wicked things the, the enemy wants us to do. This is why we just so often, when, when we get angry, we, just, we say things, we do things that we would not normally, under a right thinking, do. And so as Christians, what we want to do is get over it. As Calvin would go on to say, before the poison of hatred has found its way into the heart, anger must be thoroughly dislodged. Friend, do you struggle with anger? Perhaps you do. I know many of you do. <laughs> um, I've talked to you. Uh, and you've confessed that. Well, brothers and sisters, let's just let's persist in getting over. Uh, talk to a brother. Uh, sit down with a sister. Um, don't, don't assume Everything is okay. Talk. Ask for help. Pray. So many good remedies for our anger. Well, finally here, we see in verse 28 that we are to walk in love by working hard. Walk in love. One of the ways that we as Christians uh, walk in love is by being hard workers. By working really, really hard. Look what he says in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We see again that pattern, the negative, stop sealing, the positive, work hard, and the motivation so that you'll have something to share with someone in need. Paul essentially tells them to stop stealing. You just imagine, Paul's sending this letter and he says, y'all need to stop your thieving ways. For Paul to write that command meant that someone had to have told Paul that we have, a, we have a theft problem here at the church. And it's not from outside the church, it's from inside the church. Church members were stealing from one another. This is amazing. But it reminds us of our own sin and, and how often we drift into it. Stealing, of course, is forbidden in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a part of the law. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 5. We're told in, in John 10.10 10, that the devil is a liar and he is a thief. That the enemy comes to what? To, to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a, he's a thief. Paul has in mind here someone who is known for his thieving ways. Notice, notice what he says here in verse 28. The thief. He doesn't say those who steal or if you maybe are tempted to see it. He says, the thief, he calls them out, right? As if this person or people were characterized by their thieving ways, they were known in the congregation. There's the thief. There he goes. This is pretty provocative. But it's very transformative, isn't it? Someone who was once known for thieving ways is being transformed to the image of Christ. Someone who was once broken and bound in their sin is now set free, as Romans 8, 2 goes on to say, that we've been set free from sin and death through the death of Christ. Paul here has in mind those who are characterized by stealing, and he writes them and he says, stop it. One other thing I want to just point out as we move along is that none of these are possible apart from chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
The reason why we wanted to go so slow through those passages, because if you this morning try to set out doing this, apart from the power of the gospel, apart from true change and true regeneration, you will fail. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that that you can stop your thieving ways. Well, of course, like he does in each of these, he doesn't linger on it. He says, stop sealing by laboring. Notice how he gives the positive exhortation. The remedy, the, the right way forward, isn't just merely to stop doing something, but to work hard. He says, rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Now, I want you to notice how he describes. He did, uh, Paul doesn't just say work hard or just work. Notice how he says it. He says, doing honest work with your own hands. With your own hands. Uh, he has in mind here uh, labor. Not labor for dishonest gain, but rather labor that is good and right. There, there's a kind of work that one can do, of course, that would be dishonorable. That would not be honorable to God, but rather he describes it a one that's honorable, honorable work, good work and work done by his own hands. His point isn't, I don't think, to emphasize the type of work like manual labor, you know, working with your hands. Uh, there are some people that think that those individuals are, um, uh, I guess, better than, you know, maybe someone says behind the computer or something like that. But that's not true, right? Uh, I mean, all types of work. Paul doesn't have in mind just manual labor here. But in this culture, it would have been pretty typical for those who did work in the manual labor trades to steal. It would have been pretty common in Ephesus for those that worked in labor to steal from their employers because they were so underpaid that in order to survive, they had to steal. Now, I'm not in any way, nor is Paul, justifying stealing. There's not any, you know, okay. That's not what he's doing here, but rather what he's saying that as Christians, our lives must not be characterized by our context, but rather the new life we have in Christ. They're to be hard workers, not to be working on the backs of others. Work that's not passed off as their own. In other words, what Paul is saying is work, but do your own work. Don't, you know... Say, oh, I did that project, but you really didn't. Paul here sets out the right path forward for our own work. In the church of Thessalonica, they struggled with work because they had what's called an over-realized eschatology. They thought Jesus had already come again, and they thought they could just quit their jobs and sing kumbaya together and have fun. And, but Paul writes to them, and he says, no. Stop being lazy and get to work. He writes to them, he says that we all are to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with your hands as I instructed you. Elsewhere in Paul's ministry, he describes ministry as honest, hard work, good work. Paul writes as an example to the congregation in all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than receive. Again, as I've done before, and I'll do again, 
I think churches are lazy because their pastors are lazy. I think that's Paul's point in 4.12, that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I told you a few weeks ago that perhaps the problem why churches don't serve is because their pastors don't serve. I'm surely convinced that churches, over a long period of time, being shepherded by the same pastor, begin to act just like him. This is why we want to have godly elders who are giving godly example to the flock, right? And what Paul is doing here in Acts 20 is saying, hey, look, I model to you generosity, not by just telling you to be generous, but by being generous myself. It's the way of a pastor. The kind of elders we want to nominate and to put before the congregation and, and to affirm are elders who are hard workers. We do not need lazy elders. We need elders who will persist, as Paul did, and are generous. Well, back to our point. Friend, are you tempted to steal? I don't mean going down to the Walmart stealing. Perhaps you are. But perhaps you're tempted to pass off someone else's work as your own. Perhaps you're tempted to check out early at work. clock out. Perhaps you're a worker who checks out when he checks in. Meaning that you don't give 100%. That you're lazy. You know that's stealing. You know all that time you spend on Facebook? It's sad that employers have to block Facebook. There's studies that have been done on the billions of dollars that employers have lost on Facebook <laughs> because their employers, employers sit there and surf the web and read news articles and post Instagram pictures. Brothers and sisters, we must model hard work by not stealing from our employers. And we do it by, by doing poor work. Friend, I think Paul's point here is very clear that, that in the workplace, you should shine as a believer as the hardest worker. Just this week, I was meeting with a, a company, a vendor. And, and I was talking to this vendor, and he was recommended by one of our church members. And I was talking to this vendor, and when I was talking to him, his comment was, I send all of my customers to this guy because he is a hard worker and he takes pride in what he does. And I know it's because he's a believer in Christ. I was like, yeah, I'm thankful he's a member of my church. Uh, as believers, as Christians, we should be setting forth the example in our own communities as the ones who work the hardest. Not so that we can make a bunch of money, but that so that we'll see in a moment that we can be generous givers. If you're a student here this morning, do you struggle to pass off someone else's work as your own? In your own work, do you plagiarize? Do you play the copy and paste game? I remember years ago, in chapel, in Bible college, a young preacher got up to preach a sermon, and he did a wonderful job. It was very riveting. The only problem with his sermon was he had stolen it. To make the matter all the more worse, the guy he stole it from, he preached the sermon the week before. 
everyone in the room knew it. I hear that story all the time. Young preachers. So even pastors are tempted to stealing, passing off work that is not their own. What's the motivation here? Why, why should we stop stealing? Why should we be hard workers? Well, notice his motivation here. He doesn't say because it's the right thing to do. Uh, he doesn't say it so that you can impress others. But rather, work hard so that, purpose statement, he, the thief, may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, work hard so that you can become a generous giver. A generous giver. Paul gives us the right motivation so that we would be generous. Stealing, those who steal are the most ungenerous people you'll meet. They are grouchy and grumpy. Uh, pastors, for example, uh, just to give you an example of how, what we, how we think. You know who the biggest complainers are in the church? Just a little tip to you. They're the ones that give the least. Serious. You, you know, when you're not generous, you tend to be a, a thief. When you're not generous, you tend to be a consumer rather than a producer. And what Paul is saying to us here is that we, as Christians, should be producers and and looking with a sort of vision of, I'm working hard, not to feed myself, but others. Notice this other orientation of the Christian life. It's not really about me, but it's about my neighbor. I'm not to lie because of my neighbor, because I love my neighbor. I'm not to be angry and go to sleep with the devil because I love my my neighbor. And I'm to work hard because I love my neighbor. I love my brother. I love my sister. And you see, if you're sitting on the sidelines being lazy, you don't have anything. And then when a need comes up in the congregation, you can't be that generous giver because you've pilfered her away. And you've been stealing. Brother and sister, do you come to church to steal up everyone else's goods? And I don't mean physical goods. I mean spiritual goods. Do you come consuming everyone's spiritual goods, all the gifts that they're giving, where you yourself are stealing by not giving? Or do you come producing, working hard in the congregation, serving Coming early, staying late, doing all the ways that we, we're to serve the body. Do you, do you work hard in that? John Wesley wrote, work hard as you can. Make as much money as you can. Then give as much of it away as you can. Work hard and give it away. As Christians, we learn to put off our old ways by putting on the new ways in Christ. This is characterized by a life of love, a walk in love. We as Christians are to walk in love. We walk in love by telling the truth. By stopping our lying ways and deceptive ways and by telling the truth to one another. We walk in love as as Christians by, by getting over our anger. By not persisting in anger and consistently holding on to grudges. And we walk in love. By being generous givers. By working hard and laboring in our lives. Radical change leads to radical living. 
What Paul is painting here is a picture of a radical life. And I want to conclude with an illustration from the Bible. Jesus in Luke chapter 9 confronts a man who is known for his thieving ways. He was a notorious thief. He was known in the town as the, as the thief. He even had a little booth set up called a tax booth. And, and every time someone would come by, he would collect the taxes and he would essentially rob him. Highway robbery. He would extort money from the rich and powerful all to make himself all the more wealthy. And one day when Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a a chief tax collector and was rich. I love Luke. He's not subtle. Dude was loaded, Luke says. And I'm a wealthy doctor. That dude had more money than anyone. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because of his small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass by the way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they had saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's how notorious he was, right? Everybody knew. Everybody hated him. And Zacchaeus stood and said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. In other words, if I stole $100, I'll give him back $400. If I defrauded anyone, I'll restore it. Brothers and sisters, I give that as an example of, of a notorious thief who had a radical transformation when he was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Radical change leads to radical giving. In your life, how has Christ radically changed you? How have you been changed from a liar to a truth teller? How have you been changed as one who is once notorious for flying off the handle and the hinges and whatever you're doing, screaming and shouting and how are you been known, how were you once known as a thief, but now one of the most generous givers the church has ever known? Well, this is our prayer for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you have in, given us in Christ. We do pray this morning that true change would happen in our lives. That Lord, these truths, though, are hard. We know that we have the power through the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we pray now, empower us to walk in obedience, uh, Lord, we pray that we would honor you and glorify you in these ways. For your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.